invite you to take your Bible this morning and find there in the Old Testament the book of Isaiah. Isaiah in chapter number 40. And uh, as you're finding your way there, let me first introduce myself. My name is Alan, and I'm one of the pastors here at Downtown Church, and we are making our way through the Apostles' Creed. When you think about the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer is the prayer of prayers. When you think about the Ten Commandments, it is the law of laws. And when you think of the Apostles' Creed, it is the creed of creeds. It is the the fundamentals. It is the fundamental articles of the Christian faith. And that if you understand the Apostles' Creed, then you've grasped the essentials of Christianity. And so I want to encourage you, as I said last week by way of introduction, that as we make our way through the Apostles' Creed, I want to encourage you to learn it. I want to encourage you to, to memorize it, because it will ground you in Christian truth that is really shared by Christians everywhere. I know we just heard it read, but let's look at it again, the uh, Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. And the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. And again, I want us to think about the Apostles' Creed. There are four parts to the Apostles' Creed. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the church. And so what you and I are going to do this morning is we're going to begin really looking at the first part. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and the earth. In other words, what we and I are diving into this morning is the doctrine of God. The doctrine of God. R.C. Sproul said the most important thing for modern secular people and for modern Christians is to understand who God is. And then Sproul goes on to say there is a famine today in the knowledge of God in general and the knowledge of God the Father in particular. And so we we need to understand this doctrine of God because our foundation, our stability as Christians, as we build our life, is really on this foundational truth of who God is. God as Father, God as Almighty, God as Creator. All right, Isaiah chapter 40, let's stand together in the reading of God's holy word. We're going to look at just a few verses this morning. Look with me at Isaiah 40, verse number 12. Who has measured the waters and the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighs the mountain in scales and the hills in a balance? And then fast forward down to verses 22 and 23. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes 
to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Verse number 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the, the Holy One. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In the mid-90s, Kathy and I lived in Atlanta, Georgia. I pastored a church just outside of, of the, uh, the city. And um, during that time, at least a couple of times a week, I would have to travel to downtown Mobile, uh, downtown Atlanta, or through Atlanta. During that time, they were constructing what is now 1180 Peachtree. It's one of the tallest buildings in the, uh, the skyline of Atlanta. It's 657 feet high. And um, for a lot of the time, they're just digging out and building the foundation. There was a man in the church that I pastored. His name was Garner White. Garner was an engineer that was a part of the construction of what is called now the Tweezer Building. And so I would tell him, I said, week after week, Month after month, it seemed like even over a year before anything came out of the ground. And I would kid Garner on Sundays. I would say, when's the building coming out of the ground? When are you going to start building the building? And every week he would say, Alan, we're building the foundation. We're building the foundation. And ultimately he said to me, he said, Alan, I know that you know this, but the foundation is crucial. The, the foundation is essential. In order for the building this tall, for it not to topple, a couple of things have to happen. One is that he has to be properly anchored to the foundation. And the center of gravity of this building has to be below the earth. It has to be down in the earth. And so that's the reason it's taken so many months, it's taken so long to build this foundation. So for the building not to topple, it's crucial that it's anchored to the foundation and the center of gravity is below the surface of the earth. I've always thought about that statement, and I know that you know that about skyscrapers. But what you and I think about building our life, what do we build our life on so that our lives don't topple? It must be that we're anchored in the foundation. Well, what is this foundation that our life must be anchored on if it's not going to topple? It must be grounded in this foundation of who God is. And the Apostles' Creed tells us that in this foundation that you secure and you build your life upon is that God is creator, God is almighty, and God is father. So those are the three things that we're going to be looking at this morning as we think about the doctrine of God. And the first is this, God is Father. God is Father. You still have your Bible open to Isaiah 40? Look at verse number 25 again. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. The Bible is over and over again. It tells us that God is incomparable. In fact, it goes again and again, and it says that your thoughts are not his thoughts, and his ways are not your ways. And that God, you can't comprehend him, and he can't be compared. But it also goes on to say, in fact, the Apostles' Creed says that God is Father. Well, there's two ways that he is Father. Number one, God is Father in relation to the Trinity. 
God is Father in relation to the Trinity. You see, before creation, God the Father was still Father. That's because God is one, but He exists as three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, do I fully grasp and do I fully understand the Trinity? No. But this is what the Scripture teaches. There is only one God. There are three divine persons. And those three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. So before the world began, God was already Father. And that's why Jesus could pray so often to his Father. And he could say things like this in John chapter 17 and verse number 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So let me make that statement again. Before the world began, God was already Father. Now, why is this significant? Tim Keller puts it this way. The Trinity means that God is, in essence, relational. From the very beginning, the center of the universe is this self-giving love. From all of eternity, God has existed in relationship. And God as Father means that by his fundamental nature, he is relational. So we think about God as Father in relation to the Trinity, but also God as Father in relation to us. Now, this is kind of a, some amazing news that the Bible gives us. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse number 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, say it, Children of God. Children of God. So God is our Father. See, I love that the creed, the foundational teaching of really from creation to life eternal, it begins in this doctrinal foundation, this foundation in which we anchor our life in. I love that it begins that I believe God the Father. The Father. See, one of the reasons that God created us is so that, that he may relate to us as his children. God knows you by name. He delights in you. He cares for you. And you can access God freely because you have special rights as his child. He gave the right for those who believe in him to become children of God. Think about this truth. Almost a hundred times in John's gospel alone, Jesus uses the word Father. But it's an Aramaic word that he uses, Abba, which literally means Daddy. Almost a hundred times he uses that word in John's gospel alone. In fact, when the disciples said, Lord, would you, would you teach us how to pray? He says, okay, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, Daddy, Abba. Because Jesus used that term so much in his earthly ministry, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, it so aggravated them, it so bothered them, they, they were actually offended because Jesus would use such a familiar and intimate term to, re, to refer to God. 
But what was Jesus teaching? Jesus was teaching that that is God. God is Father. Even from the beginning, before even creation, God has always been Father. And you can have this intimate fellowship and relationship with him. And so when we confess that, when we confess that we believe in God the Father, we're confessing that God's love lies at the center of the universe. And that love includes all those who have received Jesus as Savior. And this is where the Trinity comes in. This community of love that existed before creation conspired to save us. You can't understand our salvation until you understand God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit planning together to rescue us from our sin. So if you want your life anchored on truth, you want your life anchored in such a way as that all throughout life and through the circumstances and events of life and tragedy and heartache, that you want your life anchored in the foundation, then anchor it in this truth. God is Father. God is Father. And because He is Father, you can rest in His love. Because He is Father, you can trust Him. You can trust Him even when you don't understand Him. Even when his ways seem different than, than what you would expect, anchor your life on the fact that God is Father to those who trust him. Number one, God is Father. Number two, God is Almighty. He is Almighty. It, it means that he can do whatever he intends to do. Now listen carefully. It does not mean that God cannot do everything. For example, God cannot contradict himself. God can't do anything illogical. He can't act contrary to his nature. But God does accomplish all that he wants to do. His power is not limited by anything beyond his own character and his own being. God always works to bring about what he intends to do. And not a single molecule in this universe can hinder him or stop his purposes. Think about what you and I read earlier in Isaiah 40. Look at verses 22 and 23 again. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. I would encourage you maybe later this week to, to, to study Isaiah chapter 40. In particular, verses 12 through 26 of the chapter, Isaiah makes some pretty bold statements about God, that he is the wise and watchful creator. And we'll get to that here in a few minutes. He is Lord over the nations and over the world leaders. Kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers are nothing compared to him. He alone is God, and he has no rivals. God can do anything, and he is over everything. The Bible describes this God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, as having magnificent attributes. In fact, I want us to look at some of them. As a matter of fact, 
scholars and theologians, as they study the doctrine of God, as they study the Scripture and how God has revealed Himself, they basically ascribe His attributes in two characters, two, two, uh, two classes. There are the natural attributes of God, but then there are also the, the moral attributes of God. So when we think about His natural attributes, they're listed this way. Omniscience. In other words, God knows all things and is absolutely perfect in knowledge. Omniscience. There is omni, uh, there's omnipotence. In other words, our God has all power. There's omnipresence. Our God is present everywhere. Uh, God is eternal. Our God is not limited to past, present, and future. He has no beginning. He has no end. He has no limit. He is an ever-abiding presence. It's hard for you and I to get our mind around the fact that you and I talk about yesterday and the chili cook-off. We think about today is church. It's the Lord's Day and how we're going to spend it. And tomorrow we go back to work or back on campus and we go about our regular routine. But for God, there is no past. There is no present. There is no future. God just exists. He is eternal. He is immutable. Our God is absolutely unchangeable in nature. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God never changes. But you and I, we change. And God in his unchangeableness knows how to relate to you and I as we change. Like a parent that, 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 that deals differently with their children as they grow, as they change, as they mature. He is unchangeable. His character is constant. These are the natural attributes of God. There's also the other category of the, uh, of the moral attributes of God. Let me list just a few of those. Holiness. God is totally apart from all that is evil in his perfection, his purity, his absolute sanctity. God is holy. Not only holiness, but, but righteous. God is righteous. God always functions in ways that are right. God is just. God always acts in ways that are just and that are fair. God is merciful. God yearns to offer us forgiveness that is congruent with his holiness, with his righteousness, with his justice. Loving kindness. God reaches out to us with this ultimate of, of care and, and concern. And then love. God is love. God cares by his very nature. He yearns to embrace you, embrace me. His heart is broken when we resist. So you can... You can see as, we, as we're trying to make our way through the Apostles' Creed, I mean, we could literally take an entire sermon and just talk about God's omniscience. We could take a sermon or a study and we could talk about his omnipotence. We could take a sermon and talk about his holiness. Just with each of the attributes, we could just spend weeks studying. And so how do we just take, take some elements every week and just kind of make our way through the Apostles' Creed? You can see how difficult this study really is as we try to understand or gain a, a better knowledge or understanding or faith in God. But know this, God is Father. God is Almighty. 
And number three, God is creator. God is creator. Now, what does that mean? It means that, that you and, and, and all of this that is around us is the intentional plan and personal design of a loving creator God. And to confess that God is creator is to confess that we are not cosmic accidents. I love, again, what R.C. Sproul said. We came from somewhere significant, and we are headed toward a destination of importance. It means that this world does not operate in, in, according to uh, mechanical rules. Uh, it means that everything has been created by God and is being run by Him. It means that humans are endowed with dignity because we are created in God's image. Our dignity doesn't come from what we do, but who we are. Write this in your notes, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse number 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, and with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. Again, back to Isaiah 40. Look again at verse number 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? None of this is random. All of it can be traced to his good hand. And so I want to encourage you, what will you give your, your life to in the stability? You need to anchor your life on who God is. I mean, we just need a picture of, of who he is. It'll just do your life some good when you just step back and you consider who God is. There is a, scroll is right, there is a famine today. And a grasping of how great and magnificent God is. And what we've done today, what we've done even among Christianity in America in particular, is that we've taken the, the vastness and the magnificence and the greatness of who God is, and we've tried to, to make God on our level. So that God is our friend. Instead of treating him, God is not our equal, but we should approach him with a reverent awe. Listen to this statement. Only when we've been awestruck by his majesty can we be overwhelmed by his love. I love that statement by Drew Dyke. I love that. Only, only when we've been awestruck by his majesty can we then be overwhelmed by his love. Uh, we were in England a couple of weeks ago uh, with a couple of our staff members and uh, meeting with some church planters there. You're going to be seeing probably in the next couple of weeks a video prepared by our new partners, in particular and specifically in London. But while we were over in England, I wanted to make sure that there was a couple of places that I wanted to go. I wanted to go to John Newton's church. I had the opportunity to, to stand in John Newton's pulpit. And um, we were able to sneak into the side room of his church where Newton 
was convincing Wilberforce, uh, convincing him of who God is and, and the truths of the Scripture, and ultimately as he mentored him to lead to the abolition of, of slavery. So it was an incredible thing for me to stand in John Newton's pulpit. One of the other places that I wanted to go, just as a kind of a side note, as we made our way around a little bit, was an old tavern called The Lamb and the Flag. And there's a little picture of two or three of us there at uh, Lamb and Flag. The reason I want to go to this old tavern is because it was the regular uh, stopping point for C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And it's in this place, as they would gather on a regular basis, that C.S. Lewis uh, was won to Christ by Tolkien. And uh, many of you maybe have read the, the, the Lord of the Rings uh, books. Uh, you know of the name Tolkien. And perhaps you know the name C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a radical atheist. A radical atheist. And um, in fact, C.S. Lewis talks about the fact that Lewis, Lewis says that he built around his life a wall. And anything having to do with God, he put a sign that said, no trespassing. And uh, in fact, he, he thought, he said he considered preachers like bears. And that he didn't want to go to church just like he didn't want to go to a zoo to be with those bears. And so he was a radical atheist. But there's a couple of things that happen. One is that as he's teaching at Oxford, and one of the most renowned professors at Oxford, there was another radical atheist by the name of T.D. Weldon. And T.D. Weldon, on one occasion, came and sat with C.S. Lewis and said to Lewis, the Gospels... I've come to this conclusion. The Gospels are authentic. And T.D. Weldon, who was also a radical atheist, came to faith. So he kind of rocked C.S. Lewis. He also had an incredible amount of respect for J.R.R. Tolkien. And so they began to meet. And Lewis writes in his journals that God who he referred to as the adversary, was pursuing him and pursuing him and pursuing him. And he would meet at the lamb and the flag, and over a, a pint, they would have this conversation and discussion to where Lewis writes, ultimately, in his room, he got on his knees, and he acknowledged that God was God, that he was creator he was Father, and He was Almighty. And that was the beginning of the journey in which Lewis came to faith in Jesus Christ. That he first acknowledged God was God. God was Almighty. God was Father. God was created. In fact, Lewis goes on to say that when he acknowledged God was God, he came to understand that God demanded two things. Total surrender and obedience. Total surrender and obedience. I've said that and shared that story with you. By the way, the tavern established in 1623, one of the oldest taverns in all of, all of England. 
It's an incredible thing just to sit there and just imagine Tolkien and Lewis having these conversations in which Tolkien ultimately led C.S. Lewis into faith in Christ, who became a great, great defender of the faith. I said that to say this. There may be some of you here this morning that are you're on that same journey, and maybe you feel like God is pursuing you. And maybe you're not quite ready to acknowledge who Jesus is. And by the way, we'll talk about that next week. But maybe you're like C.S. Lewis. You just feel like this pursuit of God, that God is pursuing you. How do you anchor your life in such a way as for it not to topple? You anchor your life in this foundation of who God is. God is God, and he is creator, he is almighty, and he is, if you believe, he is father. Amen? Let's bow together for just a moment. Let me just lead us in prayer. As we think about the doctrine of God and anchoring our life, there is so much that we could We could say about the doctrine of God, his attributes. I think the mistake that we've made in recent days is that we have brought God down to our level. And we've made God equal with us. God is not equal. And your mind can never understand who God is. Never to fully comprehend who God is, the person of of God, God the Father, God Almighty, God Creator. Is He pursuing you? Do you feel like the walls are are closing in? Would you acknowledge that God is God? And would you pursue Him? I'm going to lead us in prayer, and after I pray, we're going to stand together and The altar is open for you to come and kneel and pray. A couple of our pastors are going to be here. They'd love to pray with you, love to encourage you. Just maybe would like someone to pray with you. They'd love to do that. Maybe there's a family member, there's a friend. Maybe you have a father. Maybe you have a a son or a daughter that just refuses to acknowledge that that God is is real. See, I personally believe there's no such thing as as a true atheist. Because an atheist still believes. And God is real. Whether you accept it or not, doesn't take away from the fact that God is God. But maybe you, you have someone that you love that maybe says some of the similar things as C.S. Lewis. There, there is no God. There is no creator. All the while God is pursuing them. Prayer is the key. Would you pray for them? Would you pray that they would come face to face with the God of this universe? And then maybe this morning, maybe you need to anchor. Anchor more solidly. Anchor your life on that firm foundation of who God is. 
Let's stand together as I pray. Heavenly Father, in these next moments as we worship, Lord, I pray that you speak into our lives. God, we ask this morning that you would reveal yourself to us. And there may be some here this morning who have tried to deny your existence. They tried to live in such a way as you're not who you are. But God, I pray for the conviction of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would pursue every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. Because you are God. You're God the Father. You're God Almighty. You're God Creator. And we are overwhelmed with who you are and your great love for us. So we anchor our lives on that foundation. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together.